0: Daniel chapter two. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned, summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, "I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know that the dream." Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretations, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me, till the times change. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The king, the thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it, it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Ariziah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God for ever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and in the light dwells with him. To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what you we asked of you. For you have made known to us that kings matters. Therefore Daniel went in to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, You were able to make known to me in the dream that I have seen its interpretations. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O King, as you lay in bed, came at thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries is made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the King, and that you may be known the thoughts of your mind. "'You saw, O king, and behold a great image. "'The image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, "'and its appearance was frightening. "'The head of this image was of fine gold, "'its chest and the arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, "'its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. "'As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand "'and struck the image on its feet of iron and clay "'and broke them into pieces.' Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these And you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle.' As you shall saw the iron mixed with soft clay, and so they will mix with one another in marriage. They will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break its pieces, all these kingdoms, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, "'Truly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery.' Then the king gave Daniel high honours and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, the chief prefect over all wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court.
1: Thank you, Danny. I reckon you need a round of applause for that effort. (laughs) Thank you. Well, everyone wants to be on the right side of history, right? Don't you? Some would argue that there, there is no right or wrong side of history. There are simply winners and losers, kings and peasants, lovers and fighters, Others would say that history has already proven that some were right and that some were wrong. Those who fought with Hitler, for example, in World War II, were wrong. Those who fought against him were right. Now, the point is an interesting one, I think, because it assumes two things. Firstly, that there is a right And a wrong side. And secondly, that history is leading somewhere and its destination will ultimately reveal who was on the right side and who was on the wrong side. The idea, as you may be aware, has been powerfully used to motivate people towards certain goals and certain actions. In many recent debates over the last couple of years, over some uh, particularly social issues in Australia, the line is often used, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. You want to be on the right side of history, right? You don't want people in 50 years' time looking back on your life and saying, well, yep, he, she was on the wrong side. But the problem is... How do you know which side is the right side? And how can you possibly discern whether what you are doing today is on the right side or on the wrong side of history? You see, our viewpoint is too limited. We can't see into the future. We also often look back into the past with distorted lenses, and our own frailty and our immersion in our own culture, that old line of, you know, a goldfish doesn't know what water is because it's just breathing it. Our, uh, the fact that we are so immersed in our time and our space makes our judgment in the present moment too unreliable. We need a viewpoint that is certain. We need one that is sure. We need someone who sees all of history, who can tell us for sure which side is the right one. And that's exactly what we'll be hearing from Daniel 2 this morning. Once again, I won't be giving you specific points, but we'll anchor our exploration of this part of Daniel chapter 2 from verses 31 through to the end, right throughout. Hence the title of the sermon. That is our big idea. So let's have our Bibles open, ready to hear what God has to say about His story. As we read again this morning, and as you might remember from last week, we are at the point in the story where just after Nebuchadnezzar has demanded that his magicians and his Chaldeans and his experts in oneromancy, in dream interpretation, not only tell him the interpretation of his dream, but tell him what the dream was itself. And when they failed to be able to do so, he sent out an order for their mass execution, which included Daniel and his three friends. But Daniel got a meeting with the king and asked him to delay so that he could deliver the interpretation and he then went to his three friends Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah and asked them to plead with them plead with him for mercy from God and God mercifully reveals to him the dream and Daniel goes into the king's court to announce to him that only only the God who reveals mysteries could give the king what he demanded And where we pick it up here is Daniel revealing the dream and giving the interpretation, beginning at verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. I've pointed out a couple of times in our different sermon series that often in the Bible, the word behold is there to make you sit up and pay attention. Even though this is not how we would naturally talk today, I I I don't remember the last time somebody said to me, behold, Uh, we still get a sense of it, right? And so right at the beginning here, we're supposed to get a sense of how truly great this image is. Behold, a great image. An image in this dream is, is basically a statue. And from Daniel's description further on, we see how great it truly is. When was the last time you remember seeing something that was worthy of a behold? When was the last time you stood in awe of something magnificent? The most recent time for me was probably when we were in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago. As a family, we rode down to the Washington Monument, which is affectionately known by my children as the Pencil. There's a, there's a picture of it with Zai really enjoying it. He was, he was so in awe of the monument that he fell asleep. It wasn't necessarily the structure itself for me that I was in awe of. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is an impressive structure, but by today's standards, it's, it's nowhere near the, the tallest building in the world. But what impressed me was that this thing was built in the 1800s. And so long before we had the kinds of technology that we have today in order to construct the things we have, like combustion engines and cranes and advanced architecture, that sort of thing, imagine seeing this monument at the time that it was built. And in fact, when it was built, it was the tallest structure in the world for several years until the French decided they had to beat the Americans and they built the Eiffel Tower. This is the kind of awe that the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream evoked. A great image, so great, of exceeding brightness, that its appearance was frightening. Given that we know what the image represents, frightening is an appropriate description. The power and the greatness of earthly kings and kingdoms can be frightening. They were frightening then, and they are frightening today. Are you ever frightened of the global superpowers of our day? Does the thought of Russia's almost 8,000 nuclear warheads, or China's development of hypersonic missiles, or the United States' 68 aircraft carriers, Does that scare you? Even just a little? It's sobering to think that there is enough firepower in the world to wipe out so much of the planet and its population, if not all of it. And it's a very present consideration for us, especially given the current tensions and the war that is going on in Eastern Europe right now. That's the point of this image. The kingdoms of the world have an appearance of great strength. And Daniel goes on to describe what this image looks like. He says it has a head of fine gold, chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. This image is where uh, Hugh got the inspiration for the artwork for this sermon series. You can see the statue in the bottom corner there. Thanks again, Hugh, for your work, even as you are in Praise Factory, listening to this later. You can imagine seeing this in a dream and being in awe, but also wondering what on earth it could mean. I imagine that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing as he dreamt this and as he observed and looked at this image with his mind's eye, marveling frightened and in awe of what it was and what it meant. And then as he looked, something new happened. A stone was cut by no human hand, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them to pieces, all of them. This stone uh, would not have any human origin, and it would be the cause of the image's destruction. This image The statue didn't have an Achilles heel, so to speak, but like Achilles, its destruction came through its feet, and the wind carried the remains of the image away like chaff. Now, if you're unaware, the chaff is the outer husk of the head uh, of wheat, of of a grain of wheat, and in the process of harvesting grain, workers would thresh and winnow it. Those are terms that are pretty unfamiliar to us because most of us don't work in farms today. But threshing is the process of separating the wheat from the chaff by beating the grain with something or getting animals to walk on it. Or, as you can see in in this picture, having an animal walk over it with a threshing sledge. The idea is that that process separates the head of grain from the outer husk of the chaff. And you usually did this on, you guessed it, a threshing floor, hence the name. And winnowing is the process of throwing up the heads of grain once you've done this and letting the wind blow away that outer husk because the chaff is lighter than the head of grain. Sometimes you did this with a fork, and that's why you also may have heard of a winnowing fork. Here is, uh, some, I can't remember where I got that from. He might be in somewhere in Africa. But some, in some cult uh, nations, this is still done. This is still the process of harvesting grain, and this is a picture that is used many times in the Old Testament and is often to describe God's judgment. John the Baptist also uses this picture in Matthew three twelve, referring to God's uh, God's winnowing fork and the threshing floor. Now, you can see why this is such an appropriate picture for that. Blowing away that which is useless and, and ready for judgment and even burning it up while retaining that which is valuable. And the imagery has the same meaning here in Daniel 2, verse 35. With all the other parts of the image, the gold, the silver, the bronze, bronze the iron, the clay, they are broken into pieces and they become like chaff and blown away. So that not even a trace, not even a trace of them can be found. That is complete and total destruction. You can imagine how Jews living in exile, in Babylon, having been defeated, having their nation completely overwhelmed, overpowered. And reading this would have felt about seeing that picture. Jeremiah 13, 24 talks about how God's judgment on them, on the Israelites themselves, led to them being scattered like chaff. And so when that very same imagery is being used to describe the, the judgment on the king that currently has them in exile, well, you can imagine the, the joy and the freedom that that would have brought to them. especially as they experienced persecution. By no means would this Babylonian exile be the end of Israel's persecution. The next kingdoms would treat them terribly, some even worse than what they experienced here in Babylon. And yet here they can find comfort in knowing that the judge of all the earth will ultimately rule and reign and that justice would be done. Jeremiah himself reminds Israel in Jeremiah 25, 12, that God would do this. He would bring his judgment on Babylon for making Israel's land an everlasting waste. So brothers and sisters, do you have a confidence and a security in God knowing that he will do what is right and just? In the end, do you have confidence that at the end of the story, all earthly kingdoms will pass away like chaff in the wind to the point where there will be no trace of them? That fact is as sure as Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation. And we turn to his the interpretation of it now, in verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Daniel gave Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation. And now we here today hear the interpretation of the interpretation. Now, and even though I make that point a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I am making a point by saying that. See, perhaps you've been a Christian for a while and you know that this chapter in particular of, of the book of Daniel and his interpretation of the dream has lots of different interpretations today. Let me say here at the outset that not all interpretations are created equal. And let me tell you what I mean. You see, Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is not up for debate. And that's because Daniel's interpretation of the dream is just as God given as the dream itself. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream, and he gave Daniel the interpretation of that dream. He's not just saying what, what he thinks about the dream. Daniel's not just saying, oh, here's an idea. This is a side note, if you've seen the musical Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, where they basically remove God from the entire thing, there's a moment in in which Joseph kind of thinks about the dream and goes, oh, here's what I think it means. That's not what we're talking about. Daniel was given the interpretation by God. And as we saw last week, God revealed the meaning, the mystery of the dream to Daniel. I was listening to an interview this week with a guy named Brian Keating, who's a professor of physics at the University of California, and he said that in the universe, as somebody who deals with a lot of this kind of exploration, there are mysteries and there are puzzles. Mysteries, he said, are things that we simply cannot know. They are impenetrable mysteries. Why is there something rather than nothing, for example? Maybe sometime in the future, we'll develop the tools to answer that question using the scientific method. But for now, that is a mystery. How did something come from nothing? Science cannot answer that question. And The only way you could solve that question is if that mystery is revealed. If the person actually, who actually brought about everything from nothing was able to tell us. Puzzles, however, he said, they are things that need to be figured out. So like a jigsaw puzzle, there is an answer that we could figure out using the scientific method. We just have to do the work to figure it out. We have to explore, we have to test, we have to run hypotheses and and all of that kind of thing. And there are many such puzzles in quantum physics, as you might imagine. And so when I talk about interpretations... Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is a mystery that has been revealed to him. And then to Nebuchadnezzar, and now to anyone who reads the Bible, by God. That's what we saw last week. And when I talk about our interpretation of Daniel 2, our understanding of what it means and how it applies to our lives, that is a puzzle that we need to figure out. Now, there's much more to be said about this than I can or want to say here, but let me just say a couple of quick things. Firstly, none of us, no one can avoid this kind of interpretation. The Bible is God revealing His mysteries to us, and we are all tasked with the puzzle of figuring out how to interpret it. Every person interprets God's Word. Only God has perfect interpretation, so to speak. But secondly and importantly, not every solution to the puzzle, not every interpretation is created equal. You see, you can interpret Scripture using whatever means you like. You can put together a jigsaw puzzle in all sorts of different ways, even if the pieces don't quite fit together perfectly, and you can still kind of make sense of it. For example, I could say to you this morning that, well, the golden head uh, refers to Nebuchadnezzar, as Daniel says, but then the other kings, which Daniel doesn't specifically actually refer to, you know, certain kingdoms doesn't specify, well, those are kingdoms that have come many thousands of years later. So uh, the chest and the arms of silver, they must represent China because between the 16th and 19th centuries, China was the world's major silver importer. And of course, bronze, the middle and thighs of bronze, they represent Russia because Russia's always in the middle of other major global superpowers. And uh, the feet of iron and clay, they must represent the United States because iron is the strongest metal of all the three, and the US is filled with all sorts of intermarrying and intermingling ideas that actually is weakening it and making it unstable. Now, some of those observations about those countries are actually true but that's not a good way. That is not a good way to interpret scripture. I'm sure even as I was saying that you instinctively knew that I was putting the puzzle I was I was jamming pieces into the wrong spot. And so no, as Christians we look to Christ to help us interpret scripture, particularly the Old Testament He is, after all, the Word made flesh, God's revelation in in walking and talking for 30 years, 2,000 years ago. He is the one who said in Luke 24 that the Old Testament was written to testify to His work and His purpose on the cross. And so as we seek to interpret Daniel chapter 2, we ought to look to Christ to try and understand it. And certainly, the big picture point that this passage makes is that God and His kingdom will reign forever and ever. Even though I do think these chapters refer to specific earthly kingdoms, which we will get to in a moment, that is the big point for us to take away. God is, And His kingdom will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, do you place your trust in the kingdom of God, which has begun in Jesus and has destroyed the power of other earthly kingdoms and will finally blow them all away? Do you have confidence that the right side of history is the side with the stone not cut by a human hand. One day, friends, the kingdoms of the world will be blown away like chaff and not a trace of them will be left. They and all who are in them will be on the wrong side of history. You see, even though there is a king of kings in verse 37, and even though... There have been and there will be many more, as long as the human race continues on in existence, kings of kings in this world. There is a king who is above all kings of kings. He is the king of kings of kings. And that title was actually a reasonably common one for kings like Nebuchadnezzar in the ancient world. We have that written in other ancient documents And so Daniel here once again shows his wisdom and prudence by addressing him this way. And yet in the very next verse, Daniel subtly plays his hand and shows that Nebuchadnezzar is not the ultimate king of kings. No, he says it is the God of heaven who has actually given Nebuchadnezzar his kingship and his kingdom. He's given him his power and his might and his glory. The dwelling places of the children of men and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, all of that has been given by the God of heaven. You might think you are the king of kings, but that title comes from one who is above. And Daniel, he uses the imagery of Genesis and God's creation mandate given to humankind in chapter one and in chapter nine, as we saw a few weeks ago. And of course, there is hyperbole here. But by talking about Nebuchadnezzar's greatness and the fact that God has given it to him, Daniel makes it clear that there is a king over the king of kings. And Daniel makes clear that the gold part of the image is Nebuchadnezzar himself. That much, thankfully, is clear to us in the puzzle that we are trying to put together. The fun starts... In Daniel 2, when people try to figure out what these three other kingdoms are and and what they correspond to. Well, there are two main views of this. The first is that these uh, parts of the image refer to Media, Persia, and Greece. As you can see there, um, with the corresponding pictures, nice little rock at the end there for Christ... Uh, the dates giving you a rough idea of when these kingdoms uh, came to ascendancy and became global superpowers. In general, the people who interpret Daniel 2 in this way believe that the book of Daniel was written long after these, the time that these events were supposed to have happened. So they say that the incredible accuracy of Daniel's predictions, especially later on in the book, in chapter 11 in particular, they could not possibly have been written in the 6th century. B.C. Therefore, Daniel has been written by somebody who was alive in the second century B.C., after all of this has happened, and this person wrote as though they lived in the second century B.C., pretending that they were writing as this character named Daniel. And so, the reason they interpret these kingdoms to be these four, in particular, not just in chapter 2, but also later in Daniel, is because they assume that the author must be talking about kingdoms that have already passed, events that have already happened. This interpretation was first suggested by a philosopher and an opponent of Christianity named Porphyry in the 3rd century AD. And that this view has actually grown in popularity in recent times to the point where it is assumed by most critical scholars today. This view has significant theological problems, especially given that Jesus himself believed that Daniel uh, was the author of this book and that he was a real historical figure. You read that in Matthew 24, 15. But aside from theological reasons, I don't find this interpretation convincing because the book of Daniel itself was already considered to be Scripture by the Jews around the same time it was supposed to have been written. So in the 2nd century BC, uh, there was already widespread acceptance of Daniel as Scripture and of its historicity. So it's extremely unlikely that such acceptance of a book could happen so quickly or happen at around the same time. Now there's much more to be said about that if you're interested. Please feel free to ask me a question about it later or ask in question time if you like. The second view which is the one I hold, understands these three kingdoms to be that of Medo-Persia and of Greece and Rome. So you can see why those who hold the former view uh, of when Daniel was written can't have this view because Rome came after the 2nd century BC. Uh, Medo-Persia here, they are taken as one kingdom because media ended up being under Persian rule and they never fully conquered Babylon. Now this was, this interpretation, view number two, as you can see, this was the common view throughout the church's history. And one of the main reasons I hold this view is because I think chapters 7 and 8, which we will get to, describe the same kingdoms that are referred to here in chapter 2. And in both of those, the second kingdom is described as being made up of two parts, Daniel chapter 7, verse 5, and chapter 8, verse 3. And in chapter 7, it is described as a bear with one side raised up. And then chapter 8 describes it as a ram with two horns, one higher than the other. And chapter 8 then goes on to say that this ram is Media and Persia. The horns represent the kings. And so chapter 8 describes it as one kingdom with two kings. And chapter 8 also goes on to talk of the next kingdom as being Greece. And the final kingdom, one of iron and clay, is the final one that sees the coming of the rock. It is strong but also compromised by mixed marriage. And so given that Jesus arrives in the time of the Roman Empire, and given that the Roman Empire was incredibly multicultural, that seems to make perfect sense to me. Again, more to say about that. Feel free to ask any questions a bit later. But even as I've just explained that, let me remind you once again. Let me re-emphasize that the key point of this chapter is the overarching truth that God's kingdom will destroy and outlast all other earthly kingdoms. It's important that we don't miss the forest for the trees. And as I said, I think this is where a lot of people often run, run aground we get so caught up trying to figure out these little details and miss the big point. And here is the point of the forest in verse 44. In, those, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. God will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. We stood in awe of the image, in awe of the greatness of the kingdoms of the earth. Do you stand in awe of this? Do you stand in awe of a kingdom that will never be destroyed? A kingdom that shall bring to an end all the kingdoms of the earth. A kingdom that will stand forever A kingdom that would eventually begin in Christ. The one that he would announce is at hand at the beginning of his ministry. The kingdom that he would talk about and teach on throughout his ministry with many parables and pictures. That is the kingdom that has been established by the hand of God. Well, listen to verse 45 in Daniel 2. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, it broke in pieces, the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. And going back in verse 35, the stone that struck the image and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom which begins small, but it grows and grows and grows till it fills the entire earth. Does that sound familiar? Have a look at Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 32. And Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So it is with the kingdom of Christ. With the kingdom of the one who is the rock of ages. It began so small that it looked like it was finished before it even began. Its founder was crucified under Pontius Pilate. But what they didn't realize was that their evil actions, the ones who called for Jesus' execution, would be used by God to accomplish the greatest good. Jesus' willing sacrifice on the cross was the very means by which he would establish his eternal kingdom. Because Christ's kingdom wouldn't be one That would be based on earthly power, but based on God's saving grace. And you see, a person is not born into Christ's kingdom the same way you are born into other kingdoms. No, you are born again into it. You are born again into the kingdom of Christ by turning from your sin and trusting in Him for salvation. As Colossians 1, 13 to 14 tells us, we have redemption and forgiveness of sin in Christ, in whom God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Do you want to be on the right side of history? Be reborn into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Friend, if you're here this morning and you do not know the forgiveness of sin that is found in Jesus, the bad news is that you are on the wrong side of history. Perhaps alluding to Daniel 2 and quoting Psalm 118, Jesus describes it this way in Luke 20, for those who reject him, What then is written is this that is written. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Those who reject Jesus, the cornerstone, will be broken to pieces and crushed. But the good news of the gospel is that you can be on the right side of history by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ who is faithful and just to forgive. And in so doing, God transfers you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This kingdom which, as Isaiah 9-7 tells us, the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. It will ever expand. This kingdom which started small but has continued to grow, the kingdom which is found where any person confesses that Jesus is Lord, where people gather in, lo- in churches across the globe as local outposts of the global kingdom of heaven. Christ's church is where God's kingdom can be found in the here and now. And his church is found wherever true local churches are gathered. That is the kingdom that will never end. And it will continue on until Jesus comes again and consummates that kingdom. Brothers and sisters, does that fill you with awe? Do you stand in wonder and amazement of the kingdom of God and its reality here Today. Church, when you fulfill the commands of Scripture, you are participating in God's kingdom. And in an even more tangible way, when you do so with regard to the local church, you are participating in Christ's kingdom. You see, in Matthew 6 19, Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 18, 18, that same authority is wielded by the local church. That means that when you care for the least, when you show no partiality, when you gently bring back a brother or sister from wandering away, when you show hospitality, when you serve one another in love, when you don't neglect the gathering, when you confess your sin to one another, when you strive for unity in truth, And so many other things that Scripture calls you to do. When you do these things, you are participating in the kingdom. Does the mundaneness and the ordinariness of these biblical commands keep you from being in awe of the fact that by doing them, you are a participant in God's eternal kingdom? If so, don't let it. Continue to fight that. Do you feel sometimes like your acts of service go unnoticed? God notices. Do you think that your sacrifices are unappreciated? God appreciates them, even when your brothers and sisters fail to appreciate them. Do you think that the small things that you do in service to God are so insignificant that they don't make a difference? No act of faithful obedience is wasted in the kingdom of God. Not a single one, no matter how small. You see, we live in a world that is so used to measuring effectiveness and greatness by our standards. We think we know what it takes to accomplish greatness. We think we know what it takes to go down in history. Let me ask you, what's the legacy of your great-great-grandparents? Do you even know their names? Is that a way to thank people who have, in some measure, been responsible for your existence? And Chances are you know more about someone from that era who has nothing to do with you than you do with the people who are in your own family line. Somebody like Albert Einstein, for example. And yet we would count their lives as less significant than those who make it into the annals of history. Brothers and sisters, God's standard is not like ours. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Yes, it is good for us to strive to spend our lives for the glory of God and for His kingdom and for the advancement of it throughout the globe. But do not think that if you fail to be a John Chrysostom or a John Bunyan, that your life does not count. Even if your life doesn't amount to something that will be remembered by even your own great-great-grandchildren... God will remember every faithful act of obedience in His kingdom. Yes, even the insignificant things that no one else but your heavenly Father sees. With every little step of faithful obedience to God, you are on the right side of history. You are participating in the kingdom that has not been formed by human hands. In the kingdom that will stand forever. You are participating in a kingdom that cannot be stopped and one that will outlast all earthly kingdoms. Does that fill you with awe? As I heard theologian Bruce Milne say in a sermon once, You cannot stop the church of God. Throughout the church's life, plenty have tried to stop it. The Roman Empire tried, especially under Nero in the first century and Diocletian in the third century. Various religious groups and and religious empires throughout history have have tried. Liberal theologians since the 18th century have tried. Militant atheists, atheists in recent decades have tried. But you cannot stop the Church of God. Why? Because God has decreed it and declared it." In verse 45, "The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. It is a fact of history, both past, present and future. And it is a fact that is as certain as the sky is blue. How will you respond to this truth? How will you respond to that fact? We know how Nebuchadnezzar responds, recognizing that Daniel was able to rightly tell him the dream. He knew that he could trust the interpretation. And it seems here like there is a real step towards the true God. He does say, after all, that Daniel's God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. He rightly identifies that. But do you notice how somebody who worships many gods, somebody also known as a polytheist, could still say something like that? You can still believe that God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and still believe in a whole bunch of other gods. Not only that, but all the attention is on Daniel. Daniel is the one to whom Nebuchadnezzar pays homage to and offers up incense to. And so Nebuchadnezzar here recognizes something true in what has just happened and in what he has heard. But he's not quite there yet. And that is evidenced in next week's chapter. The very first verse tells you that he has not fully come to God. Brothers and sisters, how have you responded to all the mysteries that God has revealed in His Word? And how does your life change because of the certainty of it? Nebuchadnezzar, as we saw, he had a big emotional response. Many today have the same big emotional response when they hear the good news of the gospel. But as we will see next week, Nebuchadnezzar's heart had not changed. His life, his actions, his decisions didn't show somebody who had been truly humbled before the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And the kingdom of God, that's just talk. And the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 4.20. And if you remember way back when we preached on that passage, which you can find uh, in our sermon archives if you weren't around for that one, Paul is not referring to earthly power, but he is talking about the power of the gospel, the power of salvation that comes through faith in Christ. The response of a person who has been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ responds not just with hollow words or with meaningless praise that bears no fruit in their lives. No, the person on the right side of history dedicates all of their lives to God, dedicates everything to Him and worships and serves and lives for Him and Him alone. Their their high honors, they go to Jesus. They offer their bodies as living sacrifices to their Lord. And God, in His mercy, by His Spirit, day by day, inch by inch, starting small but growing consistently, molds us more and more into His image, into the image of Christ until the day when His kingdom is completed. Until the day, as Revelation 11.15 tells us, that the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ. The kingdom over which Jesus will reign forever and ever. History is chugging towards this grand finale. And God has revealed to us which side is the right side. The question is... When that rock which became a mountain that fills the whole earth finally does that and all that's left is the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ for all eternity, whose side will you be on? How you answer that question will determine what you do today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the King of all kings, our Lord Jesus Christ, one who sits on the throne. Lord, we give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. And we recognize that more often than not, we fear things other than you. Father, may we be in awe of your kingdom, in awe of the fact that by your wondrous grace, you have brought us into it through Christ our Lord and Savior. And may we live knowing that to, be, to live in, in service and sacrifice and humble submission to you is to be on the right side of history. Father, may you keep impressing that truth into our hearts such that we may live accordingly in Jesus' name. Amen.